CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 4, An American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, and your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. I'm shortening the appellations and monikers that I have assigned to myself because I've grown weary of them. Although, I don't think I will ever tire of literary mansplainer-in-chief because, look, that's what we do here on this podcast— I mansplain, and like most mansplainers, I generally have no idea what I'm talking about. But what I do is I I just sort of wade into the waters, you know, until they've covered my head. And and then when I finally realize I'm drowning in them, I come up gasping for air and hoping uh, to clear my brain fog. The brain fog, I will say, is particularly thick and odious today, having deplaned not 24 hours ago from... Des Moines, Iowa, uh, the city that um, always sleeps. I mean, I was walking around Des Moines around 5.30, 6 o'clock p.m. on a Saturday night, heading from my hotel to the comedy club where I was performing half a mile walk. If I saw half a dozen people on my trip from hotel to Teehee's Comedy Club, that would be a surprise to me. Just nobody's out on the streets in Des Moines. I don't know what they're doing. They're not outside, and uh, there doesn't there didn't seem to be a lot of places to just kind of hang out. I don't know if it's been depopulated, and in my head I'm spelling it D-E-S populated because it's Des Moines, or what, but just nobody was around. And the comedy club was nice and full, which was a good thing to see, but just like out there on the streets, and you know, you're looking in windows and wandering around, and you might see somebody walking a dog or something, but it's basically I am legend out there. There's just nothing going on. Just a... Dead zone. Might have just been the neighborhood. I don't know. Maybe there's a hopping area of Des Moines that I'm just unaware of. But yeah, at least where I was, nothing doing, man. Which is fine by me. I mean, what do I care? What am I going to do? Go out and do stuff? Fat chance. I actually arrived in Des Moines a day earlier, or two days actually earlier, 
So I had like a full day of just doing nothing, just being in Des Moines. And I could have, I could have painted the city red. What did I do instead? Just stayed in my hotel room, napped, you know? And today, you know, I've got this brain fog because there's something about travel. Maybe I've already complained about this. I've complained about so much over these past few years on the podcast, but I'm just getting just weary of travel. I mean, I get on a plane, I get off a plane, and then I feel like I have a hangover for 24 hours. There's just something about being confined in that tube in a little seat and getting on and getting off and breathing that air. It just makes me feel like a combination of ill and grimy. It's, it's just a bad feeling. I feel grilly or, or ill, illmy or imy or something. But it's just that feeling of just like sort of feeling sick and sort of feeling dirty at the same time. And you can't really wash it away. At least I can't. I mean, a shower helps, I guess. But geez, you just, I just get home and I just, ugh, I just feel gross. And it lasts like a full 24 hours before I feel better. So anyway, I'm starting to feel a little bit better, which is why I have the energy to come and sit down and record a new episode of Obscure for all of you good people. There's a lot of griminess going on on Obscure on the part of Clyde Griffiths and Hortense Briggs and Hester, also known as Esta, and the mom, whatever her name is. can't remember her name, but apparently Esta is about to be very sick, according to the mom, and she says she's going to need a doctor, and she's going to need someone to be with her all the time, and she's got to get money to pay for all this. So she turns to Clyde and says, can you get me 50 bucks? Well, Clyde has already committed his entire fortune to Hortense Briggs so she can buy that adorable little fur coat. They've made a deal with the devil. That young couple, she has sold her soul for the coat and he has sold his soul for a little tumble in the hay. That's what's going on with these folks. And so he's committed, you know, to paying her this coat off in installments so that he can get in her knickers. And now mom's coming to him and says, hey, I need 50 bucks. What are you going to do? Your sister's about to be very sick and we don't understand the nature of this illness exactly, but it's certainly pregnancy related. So she's trying to make him a deal. You could pay it back if you want. You wouldn't need to pay me anything for your room until you had. So now he's faced with this conundrum. Let us pick it up. Chapter 16 in American Tragedy. She looked at Clyde so tensely, so urgently, that he felt quite shaken by the force of the cogency of the request. And before he could add anything to the nervous gloom which shadowed her face, she added, that other money for her was for her, you know, to bring her back here after her, her, she hesitated over the appropriate word, but finally added, husband left her there in Pittsburgh. I suppose she told you that. Yes, she did, replied Clyde, heavily and sadly. My eye had skipped ahead a little bit to heavily and sadly, so... I was trying to read it heavily and sadly. Yes, she did. Uh, you know, there's a little heaviness there to it. Because my natural inclination would, be, would just be to go, yes, she did. But no, not, that's not heavy and that's not sad. For after all, Esther's condition was plainly critical, which was something that he had not stopped to meditate on before. 
Chima, he exclaimed, the thought of the fifty dollars in his pocket and its intended destination troubling him considerably. The very sum his mother was seeking. I don't know whether I can do that or not. I don't know any of the boys down there well enough for that, and they don't make any more than I do either. I might borrow a little something, but it won't look very good. He choked and swallowed a little, for lying to his mother in this way was not easy. In fact, he had never had occasion to lie in connection with anything so trying and so despicably yes, Clyde. In this moment, with that fifty dollars in your pocket, you are indeed acting despicably. I understand the temptation of Hortense Briggs. I understand what it's like when a girl uh, who you fancy suddenly bats her eyes in your direction and you think to yourself, gee, I would do anything, anything for this gal, but right now, my friend, family has to come first. Your sister is in a bad way, and though you may resent it, and though you may be pissed off, and though you may not want to do it, in fact, it is your only course of action. But here he is, lying through his teeth to his poor, sainted mother. Well, is she a saint? I don't know about that. Let's say not, but that's where we are, you know. Here was the $50 in his pocket, with Hortense on the one hand and his mother and sister on the other, and the money would solve his mother's problem as fully as it would Hortense's, and more respectably. How terrible it was not to help her. How could he refuse her, really? Nervously, he licked his lips and passed a hand over his brow, for a nervous moisture had broken out upon his face. He felt strained and mean and incompetent under the circumstances. And you haven't any money of your own right now that you could let me have, have you? His mother half pleaded, for there were a number of things in connection with Esther's condition which required immediate cash, and she had so little. No, I haven't, Ma, he said, looking at his mother shamefacedly for a moment, then away. And if it had not been that she herself was so distraught, there's a new word for us, distraught, D-I-S-T-R-A-I-T, which I imagine is uh, similar to distraught. But here we got Teddy saying distraught. I like it. She herself was so distraught, she might have seen the falsehood on his face as it was. He suffered a pang of commingled self-commiseration and self-contempt based on the distress he felt for his mother. He could not bring himself to think of losing Hortense. He must have her. And yet his mother looked so lone and so resourceless. It was shameful. He was low, really mean. Might he not later be punished for a thing like this? Yes, I suppose you will be. Clyde, if not by some omnipotence, then by uh, your own conscience, which is going to eat you alive, especially if something were to happen to Esther. What if she bleeds out, dude? What if her ovaries explode? I don't know. Something terrible could happen here. That 50 bucks in your pocket could have solved. How would you feel then, kid, if your own sister bleeds out? in her boarding house because you 
wanted some tail. My gosh, how contemptible. This is a new emotion that I feel like Dreiser has identified, new in the sense that it uh, new to us in our readings. I'll reread this. He suffered a pang of commingled self-commiseration and self-contempt. How many of us have felt that? That sense of, like, on the one hand, we know there's the thing we should be doing. On the other, we know, oh, be quiet, you animals. You hear that? Just dogs going nuts. There's the thing that you should be doing and the thing that you want to be doing, and both feel equally important. Although you know that one is for your own gratification and one is for the gratification of others whom you most likely love. How do you resolve this? Well, that's tough. You know, you want to do the right thing, but let's be honest with ourselves. We don't always do the right thing, do we? No, we are low and mean creatures just like Clyde Griffiths. And so often in this life, we make the wrong decision. And that's where you get these tragedies, folks. And that's what turns it from an American comedy to an American tragedy. So he says, I don't have any money. And he says, might I not be punished for something like this later? And I'm saying, yeah, you will. You definitely will. You're going to get your comeuppance. He tried to think of some other way, some way of getting a little money over and above the 50 that might help. If only he had a little more time, a few weeks longer, if only Hortense had not brought up this coat idea just now. I'll tell you what I might do, he went on, quite foolishly and dully, the while his mother gave vent to a helpless... I hate that he keeps saying that because it's very hard to record. Will five dollars do you any good? Well, it will be something anyhow, she replied. I can use it. Well, I can let you have that much, she said, thinking to replace it out of his next week's tips and trust to better luck throughout the week. And I'll see what I can do next week. I might let you have ten then. I can't say for sure. I had to borrow some of that other money I gave you, and I haven't got through paying for that yet. And if I come around trying to get more, they'll think, well, you know how it is. His mother sighed, thinking of the misery of having to fall back on her one son thus far. And just when he was trying to get a start, too, what would he think of all this in after years? What would he think of her, of Esta, the family? For, for all his ambition and courage and desire to be out and doing, Clyde always struck her as one who was not any too powerful physically or rock-ribbed morally or mentally. <laughs> He's not particularly rock-ribbed mentally. Not a kind thing to think about your own child. I mean, you know, I guess you gotta, you gotta be realistic with your child's attributes and foibles, but I don't know, it just seems sort of mean to think, do you think, oh, he's just not that smart, my boy. My boy's just kind of a dullard. So far as his nerves and emotions were concerned, at times he seemed to take after his father more than he did after her, and for the most part, it was so easy to excite him, to cause him to show tenseness and strain, as though he were not so very well fitted for either. And it was she, because of Esta and her husband and their joint and unfortunate lives, that was, 
and had been heaping the greater part of this strain on him. Well, yeah, at least you're self-aware enough to know that. Well, if you can't, you can't, she said. I must try and think of some other way. But she saw no clear way at the moment. End of chapter 16. Well, I do like in this book the way Dreiser bounces back and forth between people's minds. You know, he is the omnipotent that I sort of described before. He kind of knows all, sees all, does all, and that's sort of neat, you know, the way he gets inside other people's brains and lets us understand their thinking and their thought processes and and their innermost desires and what haunts them and pains them. I, I like all of that. I feel like he does that very skillfully, just sort of weaves in and out of people's psyches. Very good thing for an author to be able to do, at least an author, you know, who's writing this kind of book, I guess. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. As usual, the mansplaining is falling short. So let's take a break, gather our wits about us, come up sputtering for air, and we will continue in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure, about to start the next chapter, chapter 17. You know, we had such a nice thing going for a while where the episodes would end as the chapters would end, and now all of that has gone to hell in a handbasket. I regret it. I rue it. I'm bereaved for it. But as uh, as What's-Her-Face just said, what did she say? It is what it is. Whatever it is will be. Well, if you can't, you can't. Well, that's kind of how I feel about the chapters. If you can't, you can't. And apparently, we can't. So let's pick it up again. Chapter 17. In connection with the automobile ride suggested and arranged for the following Sunday by Hegland through his chauffeur friend, a change of plan was announced. The car, 
an expensive Packard, no less, could not be had for that day, but must be used by this Thursday or Friday, or not at all. For, as had been previously explained to all, but not with the strictest adherence to the truth, the car belonged to a certain Mr. Kimbark, an elderly and very wealthy man who at the time was traveling in Asia. Also, what was not true was that this particular youth was not Mr. Kimbark's chauffeur at all, but rather the rakish, ne'er-do-well son of Sparser, the superintendent of one of Mr. Kimbark's stock farms. This son, being anxious to pose as something more than the son of a superintendent of a farm, and as an occasional watchman, having access to the cars, had decided to take the very finest of them and ride in it. So this is what I think we're going to see all through this book. We're going to see people of modest means striving to be something beyond the circumstances of their births. We've seen it with Clyde and with Hortense and Hegland, and now with, what's his name, Sparser? Sparser. Oh, that Sparser's the superintendent, the, the son of Sparser's, who we're paying some attention to now. And he's rather ashamed to be the son of a superintendent of a stock farm, and instead wants to be seen as a guy riding around in a fancy car. You see this in Miami and Las Vegas and other such places where people of modest means will rent like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and go cruising on the Strip for no reason other than to be seen in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. They just want to appear to be something that they are not. They are living out a fantasy. And the son of Sparser, and that is what he is trying to do as well. It was Hegland who proposed that he and his hotel friends be included on some interesting trip. But since the general invitation had been given, word had come that within the next few weeks, Mr. Kimbark was likely to return. And because of this, Willard Sparser had decided at once that it might be best not to use the car anymore. He might be taken unawares, perhaps, by Mr. Kimbark's unexpected arrival, Laying this difficulty before Hegland, who was eager for the trip, the latter had scouted the idea. Why not use it once more, anyhow? He had stirred up the interest of all of his friends in this and now hated to, disappointment, to disappoint them. The following Friday, between noon and six o'clock, was fixed upon as the day. And since Hortense had changed in her plans, she now decided to accompany Clyde, who had been invited, of course. Well, Hortense seems like the kind of gal who would enjoy a ride in a Packard, you know, tooling around the town for six hours on a Friday afternoon. Of course she would. Regardless of what she had promised Clyde or not, that just seems like her cup of tea, doesn't it? Again, trying to represent yourself as something that you're not. That definitely sounds like an idea that would interest Hortense Briggs. But as Hegland had explained to Ratterer and Higby, since it was being used without the owner's consent, they must meet rather far out. The men in one of the quiet streets near 17th and West Prospect, from which point they could proceed to a meeting place more convenient for the girls, namely 20th and Washington. From thence they would speed via the West Parkway and the Hannibal Bridge north and east to Harlem, North Kansas City, 
Minaville, and so through Liberty and Mosby to Excelsior Springs. Their chief objective there was a little inn, the Wigwam, a mile or two this side of Excelsior, which was open the year around. It was really a combination of restaurant and dancing parlor and hotel, a Victrola and Wurlitzer player piano furnished the necessary music. Such groups as this were not infrequent, and Hegland, as well as Higby, who'd been, un- who'd been there on several occasions, described it as dandy. The food was good, and the road to it excellent. There was a little river just below it, where in the summertime, at least, there was rowing and fishing. In winter, some people skated when there was ice. To be sure, at this time, January, the road was heavily packed with snow, but easy to get over, and the scenery fine. There was a little lake, not so far from Excelsior, at this time of year, also frozen over. And according to Hegland, who was always unduly imaginative and high-spirited, they might go there and skate. Well, that does require some imagination, doesn't it? To see a frozen lake and think to yourself, by God, I could skate on that. That whole paragraph has a very Hemingway-esque tone to it, doesn't it? The listing of the places and the sort of simple description of the food was good and the road to it excellent. And then the little river just below it, where in the summertime there was rowing and fishing and, you know, it's got a kind of naturalistic vibe to it that I feel like would be Ernest Hemingway approved. You know, Dreiser is a little more... What's the word I'm looking for? I I hate to say the word rococo, but that's the only word that comes to mind. I don't even know if it's apt, but he's a little bit more rococo than Hemingway, embellishing his sentences with the aforementioned adverbs and, uh, you know, trying to paint as pretty a picture as he can. It doesn't have Hemingway's terse journalistic style. But here in this paragraph, we sort of see how the two might have been contemporaries and in fact were. Well, you listen to who's talking about skating on a trip like this, commented rather rather cynically. For to his way of thinking, this was no occasion for any such side athletics, but for lovemaking exclusively. So, I guess the idea being they're going to go to this inn with their gals. They're going to have some of that good food and sip some bubbly and maybe uh, head upstairs to a room or two for an hour and change. They're going to do some lovemaking. And of course, Hortense has already acquiesced to such activity, although she has not yet secured secured her fur coat, so she may be reluctant to participate on credit, so to speak. Oh, hell, can't a fella have a funny idea even without being roasted for it? (laughs) Retorted the author of the idea. The only one, apart from Sparser, who suffered any qualms in connection with all this was Clyde himself. For to him, from the first, the fact that the car to be used did not belong to Sparser, but to his employer, was disturbing, almost irritatingly so. He did not like the idea of taking anything that belonged to anyone else, even for temporary use. Something might happen. It might be found out. Don't you think it's dangerous for us to be going out in this car, he asked of Ratterer, a few days before the trip, and when he fully understood the nature of the source of the car? Oh, I don't know, replied Ratterer, who, being accustomed to such ideas and devices as this, was not much disturbed by them. 
I'm not taking the car, and you're not, are you? If he wants to take it, that's his lookout, ain't it? If he wants me to go, I'll go. Why shouldn't I? All I want is to be brought back here on time. That's the only thing that would ever worry me. And Higby, coming up at the moment, had voiced exactly the same sentiments. Yet Clyde remained troubled. Might not work out right. He might lose his job through a thing like this. But so fascinated was he by the thought of riding in such a fine car with Hortense and with all these other girls and boys that he could not resist the temptation to go. Well, of course not. Look, there is some logic in this. You know, a friend says, hey, you want to come for a ride with me in a fancy car? You go, well, sure, why not? It's up to you to trace the lineage of the car? to find out exactly who owns it and where it comes from? Well, that seems to me that that's on Sparser, isn't it? That's on poor Willard. That's not on you. You're just a friend. Well, try telling it to the cops when they arrest you for riding around in a stolen vehicle. Try telling it to to them when you're being charged as an accomplice to grand larceny, because that's what this amounts to, guys. Grand larceny. You know, what if Kimbark comes back and and he's looking for his Packard? Mr. Sparser, where's my Packard? And then Sparser goes to the garage and says, Oh, by God, Kimbark, it's gone. Well, who do you think's going to get fired? Sparser, that's who. The kid is risking everything just for a little joyride, and that's what makes it exciting. Immediately after noon on the Friday of this particular week, the several participants of the outing were gathered at the points agreed upon. Hegland, Ratterer, Higby and Clyde at 18th and West Prospect, near the railroad yards, Maida Axelrod, Heglin's girl, Lucille Nicholas, a friend of Ratterer's, and Tina Kogel, a friend of Higby's, also Laura Sipe, another girl who was brought by Tina Kogel to be introduced to Sparser for the occasion, at 20th and Washington. Only since Hortense had sent word at the last moment to Clyde that she had to go out to her house for something, and that they were to run out to 49th and Genesee, where she lived. They did so, but not without grumbling. So it's, it seems like it's eight or nine people, maybe ten, in this car. And you think about it, you know, you think back to those old, those giant, enormous old cars, and it seems like they could fit that many. You know, they had like multiple rows of seats, and then you had people up front, and people hanging off the sideboards, and people in a jump seat in the back. I guess they could accommodate all these, all these boys and girls. The day, a late January one, was inclined to be smoky with lowering clouds, especially within the environs of Kansas City. It even threatened snow at times, a most interesting and picturesque prospect to to those within. They liked it. Oh, gee, I hope it does, Tina Kogel exclaimed when someone commented on the possibility. And Lucille Nicholas added, Oh, I just love to see it snow at times. Along the West Bluff Road, Washington and Second Streets, they finally made their way across the Hannibal Bridge to Harlem, and from thence along the winding and hill-sentineled river road to Randolph Heights and Minaville. And beyond that came Mosby and Liberty, to and through which the roadbed was better, with interesting glimpses of small homesteads and the bleak, snow-covered hills of January. Uh, A little bit interesting to me, I mean, just just a sort of side note, 
We spend a lot of time talking about the route and the hills and the snow and everything, but there's really no description of the automobile itself. I suppose we're all meant to understand exactly what a Packard looks like, but the fact of the matter is, a hundred years later, I don't. So, before we conclude today, why don't I crank up the research machine? I'm just going to Google what a 1925 Packard looks like. Packard Roadster. I guess a Packard sedan, really, is what I'm looking for. Let's see. That's yeah, a big old machine. It, uh, well, it, it looks a little bit like, like a stretched out Model T. It's covered. And I'd like to see the interior just to see how they fit everybody. Well, here's one that, had, that doesn't have a top on it. I guess you could get them with top or without. So the Touring one, quite long, huge, long nose. This one is a kind of grayish green, almost a, I don't know, a, well, maybe a sort of bluish grayish green, I guess. And it looks like it has one, two, I can't tell how many rows of seats, but it doesn't doesn't look to me like you could fit that many people in, but what do I know? I guess if they're all crammed together and sitting on each other's laps and what have you, they could have themselves a fine old time. But it's a it's an attractive automobile. No getting around it, particularly when they're painted in fanciful colors. Here's one with a with a seat in the back, a jump seat. I guess that's what they call them. And uh, here's one that yeah, they you know they came in all different sizes and and what have you. Interestingly, the 1928. Packard 526 almost looks like a Jeep. Hmm. It's a fine looking automobile, the Packard. Like to have one myself. All right, so where are we? They took them in, the interesting glimpses of homesteads, etc. Clyde, who for all his years in Kansas City had never ventured much beyond Kansas City, Kansas on the west, where the primitive and natural woods of Swope Park on the east nor farther along the Kansas or Missouri rivers than Argentine on the one side and Randolph Heights on the other, was quite fascinated by the idea of travel which appeared to be suggested by all this distant travel. I think we might be getting some foreshadowing here. Remember, he's still got that uncle on the East Coast, that the rich uncle who makes shirt collars and short sleeves and whatever the hell else he makes. But could be an idea sort of being germinated in Clyde's fertile mind, regardless of the fact that he's an idiot, according to his mother. It was all so different from his ordinary routine, and on this occasion Hortense was inclined to be very genial and friendly. She snuggled down beside him on the seat, and when he, noting that the others had already drawn their girls to them in affectionate embraces, put his arm about her and drew her to him, she made no particular protest. Instead, she looked up and said, I'll have to take my hat off, I guess. The others laughed. There was something about her quick, crisp way which was amusing at times. Besides, she had done her hair in a new way which made her look decidedly prettier, and she was anxious to have the others see it. Can we dance anywhere out here? She called to the others without looking around. Surest thing you know, said Higby who by now had persuaded Tina Kogel to take her hat off and was holding her close. They got a player piano and a Victrola out there. If I'd have thought I'd have brought my cornet, I can play Dixie on that. The car was speeding at breakneck pace over a snowy white road and between white fields. In fact, Sparser, considering himself a master of car manipulation as well as the real owner of it for the moment, 
was attempting to see how fast he could go on such a road. Sparser, you idiot. You're in a, you're in a, basically you're in a Rolls Royce that you don't own, driving as fast as you can on an icy road with a bunch of teenagers in your car. What do you think's going to happen, you, you moron? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I'm going to leave it there because I don't know what's going to happen, but I suspect something terrible. You know, the hats are off, folks. Heads are going to roll. I mean that literally. He's going to he's going to turn the car over and Hortense's head is going to snap off like a dandelion head or something. I don't know. Hard to know what's going to happen, but probably nothing good. Look, these 1925 cars, they didn't come with seat belts. You know, they don't have crumple zones and they don't have airbags. Everything in them is jagged and made of metal. You do something stupid, you're going to die. And it sounds like that's exactly what they're doing. Stupid stuff. So we'll leave it there, I guess. Hopefully, we'll get some blood and mayhem and gore on the road to perdition. Because that's where they're heading, folks. Perdition. So we'll have to pick it up next time on another thrilling episode of Obscure. But until then... I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading uh and it's just a fun community so you know head on over to patreon.com slash michael ian black and i will see you next time